You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Dr. Karen Chung is an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Foreign Languages and Literatures of National Taiwan University. She talked about something called the ECHO method when she was previously interviewed for Talking Taiwan in 2012, and we've invited her back to give us an update. In this interview, she shared some additional tips on how to use the ECHO method and her thoughts on the challenges that Taiwanese students face in learning English. We also spoke about Taiwan's bilingual 2030 plan. Professor Chung has a TEDx talk with over 1.5 million views and an online open courseware course in phonetics on the Taiwan University site, which has received over 1.3 million views. A lifelong learner herself, she talked about when she first started learning Chinese and how to this day she is learning and improving her Chinese by reading classical Chinese works of literature. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by Natoa, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. Natoa was founded in 1988 and its mission is one, to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. Two, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. Three, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. Four, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. Five, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. I thought that we could begin by you telling me a little bit about yourself and where your interest in language came from. Actually, it started maybe when I was about four my father is a second-generation German, and he liked languages besides. He learned German as his first language up through kindergarten, but then it was forbidden because it was the beginning. Oh, it was during World War One, and German mm -hmm. was no longer allowed. So then he switched to English when he was very young. But he took it up again in junior college along with his other languages like Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And he passed on this interest to us kids. I have a sister and spoke German with us like at the breakfast table, not so much in a bilingual household way, but he would just tell me like, this is a plate, this is a fork in German. So I started then. And by some funny chance in Minnesota, we also had German in fourth through sixth grade. So I continued it then. And then later on, and there is a kind of incident that sort of turned things around. And that was, um, um, we were starting an open school in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I'm from. And mm -hmm. I applied to get in because I was kind of impatient with conventional schooling. But I didn't get in because I'm white. <laughs> and they had too many oh. white people from my district. And they wanted to have mm -hmm. greater diversity, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. But I had gone to volunteer that summer painting and nailing together bookcases and things, and I was pretty disappointed. So I start my new semester in 11th grade at the traditional school, and I thought 
no, I don't want to do this. So I went over to the principal of the open school and I said, you know, I'm really disappointed at not getting in, but you know, I speak German. And then he says, oh, and I said, yeah. And I said, I will teach German here for free if you let me in. So he thought for a minute and he said, okay. (laughs) So I got into the open school. (laughs) Yes, by teaching German. And I didn't mind doing it for free because I loved it so much. So I was teaching regular language classes starting from 11th grade and then again in 12th grade. And I attended regular language faculty meetings meetings of the school district and was doing reviews on new language textbooks and things like that at age 16. So <laughs> that's sort oh, of wow. how it came around with German. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then during my first year, uh, my mentor at the school arranged for me to join a trip to Mexico that the school had arranged. And I mm-hmm. learned Spanish there. And then the summer before my senior year, I happened to take a course in Chinese studies. My brother-in-law said, don't just do Western European languages. You should try Russian and Chinese and languages like that. So I tried Russian, wasn't my thing. I tried Chinese and I knew I'd found my language. So that's how I arrived at Chinese. Wow, that's great. So how many languages do you speak? I feel comfortable in four. The other ones are mainly dabbling. I just enjoy it. So if I get a chance, I will take, at least in the past, I would take up a new language like, say, Burmese or Georgian. But I didn't go really deep into them, kind of maybe went to the country and studied for a while. But Chinese is my one and only love, actually, in the end. Really? Why is that? That's interesting. It was interesting for me because when I tried out the other languages, it was just sort of all variants on the same theme. They were all Indo-European. And then when we got to Chinese, the idea of tones changing meaning was really new Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Not having to worry about past tense endings and third person singular endings and even gender. I thought, wow, this is neat. You know, this is going to save me a lot of trouble. (laughs) And beyond that, it was a cultural thing because I grew up in a fairly conservative, although intellectual household. And actually Confucian values are very similar to my father's values. And so I felt a strong resonance there. And then I, Chinese sort of became a religion for me. Everything I did, if it was cooking or music or anything (laughs) else, I just really got into it. Wow, that's interesting. And maybe you're maybe you're up for the challenge too. <laughs> <laughs> I just I really found something I really loved and it's lasted till after retirement. So that's a pretty good record, I think. I watched your TEDx talk actually, and it's pretty impressive. You speak so fluently um, in Mandarin during most of the talk, and so that's quite impressive. Yeah, thank you. But it's what I've put most of my energy in all these years. What initially brought you to Taiwan? At the time, I had wanted to go to mainland China, but it was actually during the Cultural Revolution. And there was like a one-year waiting list for Americans to visit China. And that was only for a visit. You couldn't go study there. So at the time, the main way to go to access Chinese and go live in a Chinese-speaking country was Taiwan. And Mm -hmm. I made a lot of Chinese or Taiwanese friends when I was at the University of Minnesota. I majored in Chinese, and that's where my connection was. I came to Taiwan after I graduated uh, undergrad and then started a master program here. Oh, great. And so when was that? That was in 1976. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek had just passed away. Mao Zedong died soon after I arrived. 
Yeah, it was a very historical period. Yeah, what was Taiwan like back then compared to now? People ask that. And, you know, the biggest change is the MRT. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the other things, in many ways, they feel much the same. The people, the food. Of course, now it's much livelier and more colorful. At the time, it was a bit grayer. I still haunt many of the same neighborhoods as I did in the 70s. You demonstrated the echo method in the last episode that we are going to release before this episode, just so that people can hear what you said uh, almost 10 years ago. And also in your TED Talk, you talked about it, and you said that it consists of three steps, listen, echo, and repeat. Right. So can the echo method also be used to learn other languages? Because you demonstrated it as a way to um, learn English and have the proper pronunciation for English. Yes, it works with absolutely any language or dialect. So if you're Taiwanese and you don't speak Taiwanese, you can also use it for that. You can use it for anything. And not only that, it will also increase your sensitivity to your native language because there's a lot of things we just don't notice about our own language. What it really does is it opens your ears and increases your sensitivity. Where does the echo method come from? Is it something that you came up with or that you read somewhere? Yes. So when I was teaching at Taiwan University, I started there in 1990. I very quickly identified a big blind spot in English education in Taiwan and in the students that were coming to me. And that was pronunciation and listening. I found that they had very little experience with either one. Their pronunciation, while often understandable, was really different from the way a native speaker would say something. And often they would listen and either not understand or misunderstand. So I realized that they really needed work there, so I kind of made that my niche. I also found that if we were doing listening, uh, listen and repeat in class, They would often not even let me finish the sentence and they already started repeating. So, for example, please have a seat. I would get to please have and they were already repeating. Now, what does that tell you? (laughs) It tells you either they were not listening at all and they were reading. In any case, they were not listening. They were not listening at all. They were doing something else and they were mainly just preparing their own performance. And if you're not listening and you don't have a correct model going in, You're just going to invent your own model, and that's what you all will output. And my view of general Taiwan English, the way people tend to speak English in Taiwan, while they're often able to get by, it's really basically a version that they have made up themselves. Because if they haven't heard how a native speaker speaks it, they are just going to guess based on the writing because their teaching is based on writing. And I asked them, well, so if you're going to teach a foreigner Chinese, you're just going to show them a book and say, look, we've got four tones and I've outlined the the outline of the tone here in the book. Go ahead and read. I said, do you think that would work? And they just laughed. I said, they said, no, that's impossible. I said, well, how would you teach them the four tones? They said, well, of course, I would say it for myself and then ask them to listen and repeat. I said, right. Mm-hmm. Why don't you do that with English? <laughs> English is more difficult or easy to learn than Chinese. Why would you omit listening entirely from English teaching if it's obvious to you that that's the way you need to learn Chinese and they just don't say anything else? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. once you 
change places with the other person, you realize that in order to learn a language, you have to listen to it first. How is it spoken? If you try to put the language together just from pieces that you learned, like vocabulary words, with the rules you've learned, and that's grammar, you will come up with some very strange sentences. For example, um, uh, Lisa isn't quite comfortable today, so she cannot come. What does that mean? It means she's sick and she's not going to make it to class. But that's not how we say it in English. So you need to learn a whole phrase. You need to learn a whole sentence in order to be communicative. Or people are just not going to follow you. or They will think a minute and try to decode it, decipher it. So once you've got that in your head, then the next thing you'll have to realize is that learning any skill, and especially language, you need to work at it work at it every day. You don't just panic prepare for a test and then be done with it after the test. That is also missing here. And that is cultivating good learning habits in students so that they work on it themselves every day because they enjoy it. Basically, I ask my students, why do you learn English? They say for the test because I want to get into a good school. Okay. And I said, Have you ever thought about learning it just because you want to get good at it? And they just looked at me with a shocked expression. They go, no, I never thought about that. <laughs> And yet that's mainly how Europeans, not all Europeans, but in the countries where English is spoken quite well, that's generally why they learn it so well. They really want to learn English. They enjoy it. They like, for example, um, social media. They like movies. They like to travel. And in order to do that, they need good English. And here it's mainly it's to pass the test and then it's done. Yeah, perhaps there's something cultural about that because there's so much emphasis on passing the test in a lot of subjects, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, I have a good friend who specializes mm -hmm. in math. He's actually a very famous person, Shi Ying Lao Shi. And he mm -hmm. says the same is true of math. I thought, you know, it must be better with math because math you can learn by formulas. And he shook his head. He says, no, it's the same problem. <laughs> I see. Yeah. And this echo method, is it something that, because um, I haven't heard it before, is it something that you came up with or that you read somewhere? And are there other people that are teaching it now? Okay, so getting back to the story where I left off, I found that the students were not listening when we were doing listen and repeat. So in order mm -hmm. to get them to listen, I said, after I finish giving you the model sentence, be quiet. And you will hear a voice in your head repeat whatever you just heard. Whatever was just said, you will hear it repeat in your brain. And that is called echoic memory. It is a form of auditory memory. Auditory memory is a form of short-term memory, which only lasts a couple seconds. So if you don't catch it right away, it's gone. Short-term memory, as per its name, only lasts a few seconds. So you have to really Pay attention immediately after something has been said or you've heard a sound, even a crash of something to the floor. You will hear it repeat in your head with echoic memory. It's something built into our brains. And I learned it myself while I was learning languages, because if you just pause a minute, whatever somebody just said, you can hear it repeat in your brain with that person's voice. It's not your own invented or accustomed accent. It's exactly the way the sound originally sounded just as mm -hmm. though it was a tape replaying and replaying. Well, just usually replaying once. So like if you say to somebody says to you, oh, can you tell me where the mo was? And you go, huh? Oh, never mind. I know what you mean. So maybe you're looking for your purse or whatever it is. After you pause for a second, 
that sentence you didn't hear clearly the first time, you'll hear it clearly in the echo in your head and the person doesn't have to repeat it. I don't know, you may have had this experience before. You say, huh, Actually, somebody? I just did. <laughs> <laughs> I said something good. to my partner and then he yeah. said, what? And then he said, oh yeah, I got it. <laughs> exactly, that's a perfect example. That's echoic memory. So in fact, we are aware of it, at least at some level of consciousness, although not really actively. And it's kind of amazing to me that this has not, as far as I know, been applied to language learning where it is really, really powerful. Because number one, it stops you from, from interrupting. When you interrupt, you're not listening. You're only preparing your own performance, which is something that a lot of us do in conversation anyway, which is not a good habit. And then second, you give that t- you, you leave enough time for the echo to play out completely in your head. And when you listen to it a second time, it is actually produced by your brain based on that input, which means that you have internalized whatever it was. So if your brain has internalized it, that means you now know how to produce the sentence. Your own brain has now taken ownership and figured out how to do it. At that point, you're going to be able to produce it often like a native speaker. Sometimes you'll miss some details that somebody needs to point out to you, but you will probably repeat it exactly as you heard it. So I have seen examples of students with really, really rustic accents, with really hardcore Taiwanese accents. And you tell them, do not make any sound after I repeat. You know, nobody kind of jump the gun. Just wait till I'm finished. Then wait until I give you a signal so it can replay in your head and then repeat. And some people sound like native speakers on the spot. It's immediately effective. Right. But the key is repetition. The key is listening first. (laughs) Repetition is the second part. Right. So it's listen. You listen Mm -hmm. to what's coming in, echo it in your head. Then you repeat and you say the key is repetition. It's true because Taiwanese have limited time to prepare so many subjects for so many tests. So they don't like to waste time. That means they're probably not going to repeat something if they've looked at it once Maybe in some cases a second time they'll move on, which does not do much for retention. But for language, you need that sound to be repeated over and over and over until it enters your long-term memory and it's filed away as a sound file in your brain, which will naturally pop out when you need to use it in actual life or in context. Unless you've repeated it, listened, echoed, and repeat enough times it's just going to slip by and it's not going to make much of an impression. So number one is listening. Number two is yes, repeat it many times and then repeat it and make a habit of it so that when it's needed, it will just pop out correctly with good grammar and pronunciation. So it's more than killing two two birds with one stone. It's pronunciation, grammar, fluency, appropriateness, appropriateness, all rolled into one. The way we pick up correct sentences when we're children learning our mother tongue. So the idea is to repeat it enough times that it gets internalized and it becomes automatic. That's right. Becoming automatic is the key. And that's Mm -hmm. why you need to work at it every single day. So working at it three hours, burning out, and then not touching it till next week is not going to be effective. But if you work on it for just 10 minutes every day, it will soon become part of you and it will become a natural way of the of the way you interact in English. And that's what we're aiming for. Right. 
Well, that actually sounds like good advice for a lot of things, skills that you'd want to acquire because doing the short-term thing to acquire it and then just dropping it probably is not a good way to have the skill long-term. Exactly. And that applies, for example, to learning a musical instrument or everything else. Mm -hmm. The only thing that we have not really conquered yet is feedback because you can practice a lot on yourself and you'll make a lot of progress, but you may also be missing some important things. If somebody gives you a little feedback, you may may be able to fix them on the spot. But if you don't, you may get some entrenched habits that are a little harder to change later. So unless you have somebody giving you feedback, you may actually be overlearning some mistakes. But if you find ways to interact with native speakers, even if they're not trained in phonetics or in language teaching, they will often like kind of frown if you say something weird. So you got to watch people's eyebrows. You know, if they're frowning a little bit, you'll say, oh, did I just say something wrong? Can you say it correctly for me? You need to be attuned to feedback from other people to really improve. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting because you did also talk about that in your TED Talk, the importance of paying attention to the person that you're speaking to. And as you put it, making it easier for your listener, like your conversation partner, making it easier for them to understand you. Yes. And using that approach, I have found to be very effective with Taiwanese people who have a tradition of being very considerate of other people. I mean, the way this society operates as smoothly as it does, not perfect, but a lot of things go very smoothly because people will actually give others the benefit of the doubt and nod their head and be nice and focus on the positive. And they, their rule is you are supposed to make the other person feel comfortable. No matter what, even if some awkwardness comes up, you smooth it over, you make them feel comfortable. And when you realize that if you insist on, oh, pronunciation doesn't matter that much, people seem to understand me, then you're focusing on yourself. But the minute you focus on the comfort of the other person, you can see it in the faces of my students. Their their, their expression changes immediately. Then they under, understand I'm doing this for other people, not just for my own vanity. And now for a short break. Hello, listeners. I'm excited to announce that I recently interviewed Robert Tao, founder of UMC, who's been making lots of news headlines. In August, he pledged to donate 100 million US dollars to help Taiwan defend itself. If you'd like exclusive first listening access to my interview with Mr. Tao, simply make a donation of $25 or more to Talking Taiwan at talkingtaiwan.com forward slash support. All of our donors, past, present, and future, will also get first listening access to my interviews with Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who has been inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame, and Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. We'd also like to congratulate all the winners of the artwork from our event, A Night with Master Cartoonist Guy Gilchrist. If you missed the event, you can still experience Guy's artistry by watching the recorded replay of Talking Taiwan's YouTube channel or listen to highlights from the event in episode 214. We are so grateful for all of your support and our growing listenership. 
Now, back to the episode. There's a lot of research and studies that say that language is best acquired before the age of 10. Do you think that it is harder for people to acquire language at uh, later ages? Okay, that's the critical age hypothesis. And they say that somewhere, especially around puberty, it gets harder to acquire a native-like accent. This is true to some extent, but we need to look back earlier. This doesn't really just start at puberty. When you are teaching a baby or letting a baby absorb things just by being in an environment, they have basically no filters. Everything goes in. So whatever ever you learned as a child up through, say, first and second grade, you take that to be the truth of the universe. That's gospel truth. Because that's what you absorb before your brain was able to exercise critical thinking and say, this is not a good idea. I'm going to reject this idea because kids don't reject anything. Everything comes in. The older you grow, the more you're able to exercise this kind of critical thinking and the more brain filters you put up, especially by puberty. You've got a lot of filters up and you enter a rebellious phase where you're probably going to actually actively not do things you're told or that are expected of you. So by that point, your brain filters will easily reject anything that isn't already part of your world. From that point of view, it is indeed harder because of all those filters. And that's something that's ensured human survival over eons, because by then we are more wary of others, able to identify someone who may be dangerous to us and so forth. So with all those filters up, we also filter out things that are not like our own world. So you have to find a way to get through those filters, pull them down and let new things in. And that's part of the process that I call opening your ears. And that is part of the echo method where you just let down these barriers and filters. Whatever is put out there, you let it into your brain and you repeat it exactly. It's like letting down these protective filters that are basically, as I can see it, the cause behind the critical age problem. So yes, anybody can do it, but you need to learn how to open your ears. Oh, that's very interesting. And also, it seems that a lot of people would agree that learning, when learning a language, it's better to be fully immersed either in a country or an environment where the majority of people are speaking the language that you want to acquire. Do you think that's true, or can you acquire a near-native access in a foreign language if you're not fully immersed in an environment where you're constantly exposed? That's a good question, and it really depends on the learner. Because in my 30-some years of teaching at Taiwan University, it seems every year I would get a student or two who spoke English pretty much like a native speaker. And none of them, the ones I'm thinking of, had lived abroad. They all learned it in Taiwan. And in almost 100% of the cases, I go, how did you learn English so well? It sounds so natural with native-like intonation, and you even know a lot of our idioms and slang. They said, I learned it from TV. Now, I personally don't even own a TV. I don't really like TV. But when it comes to language learning, TV is probably the best way to learn a language. So find a series that you really like. Ones that I use in class include The Gilmore Girls and The Big Bang Theory. And then Mm -hmm. just take one episode and watch it over and over. Then just focus on one very short scene, maybe a minute or two. And you apply the echo method to it over and over and over again until you want to throw up. And if you don't do it until you want to throw up, it's not enough. You have to overlearn. And you do this every day. So 
my my current um, collaborator that I'm working on various projects with is a former student in TA, and that's how she learned English so well. And so yeah. I know it's effective, right? She took one passage. In this case, she didn't use TV. She took one passage from a popular English learning magazine and then played uh-huh. the CD over and over and over again, worked on it every single day during one summer when she told her mother she did not want to go to a cram school. She just worked on that one lesson. And when she was done, she could read it exactly like the voice on the CD. And after that, her English pronunciation was nearly perfect. So the answer is, it depends on the learner. If you are willing to, number one, invest the time and effort and passion, you have to really want to do it. And number two, if you have a good method, because if you're going to follow the method that they passed on to you in school of memorizing vocabulary words from a textbook, making up your own pronunciation, never checking the audio of an online dictionary, and then memorizing grammar rules and taking tests, you are not going to reach that level. But if you use the method of the others, either with like TV series or with some kind of audio recording, yes, you can reach near native ability on your own wherever you live. It doesn't matter, especially now with the internet. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. if you live in the country of your target language, I knew many, many people from Taiwan and other places. After 30 years, they still spoke Taiwan English. Their English had basically not improved. It had basically fossilized, and that was it because they had not opened their ears and they were not practicing. One other thing is if you find a native speaker or a good speaker of the language to practice with, it helps hugely because another important element of language learning is emotion. And if you, is there, there is emotion involved in anything. We all love gossip. We will remember it much better and interacting with another human. If there's an exchange, whatever happens, that interaction is, you know, including all the mistakes and everything, we're going to remember them and feel strong emotion associated with them and learn much better. So if you are serious about it, find a language exchange partner and meet with them regularly. It will really help. Right. Well, you're making me think that I should revisit my Chinese. <laughs> um, I grew up in the in Canada, and I English is pretty much my first language. But there was a time before I went to kindergarten, apparently, that I spoke Mandarin Taiwanese and not that much English. So I wonder, in a case with somebody like me, is there could I tap into that somehow? Because I still do not speak Mandarin with a good accent. I sound like an American speaking Chinese. <laughs> well, I have to say, on the one hand, your accent is very popular in Taiwan. Even some local people purposely start speaking like an ABC <laughs> or a CBC because it's fashionable. You sound kind of more cosmopolitan and cultured if you do that. So on the one hand, that kind of an accent has a kind of prestige over here. But on the other hand, if you want to work on it more, absolutely, it would work with you. Depending on your motivation, if you're highly motivated, you've got the method, you would pick it up much more quickly than people who didn't have that background that you have. So absolutely go for it. Right. Yeah. No, I think that I probably use the wrong tone sometimes. So that's not a good thing. (laughs) You will have to focus on that. And then I recommend actually Misha's latest podcast. He talks about tones and making them really correct and precise. Oh, I see. Great. And um, in the time that you've been in Taiwan, have you seen any changes in the way that English is taught? No. (laughs) 
not really. <laughs> that's, that's a little strong. It's a little strong. It's a little strong. But I think individual teachers may have made some changes. But the way the system is set up, even if a teacher has really good intentions, and many of them do. I mean, teachers work very, very hard in Taiwan in general yes. because I've had three kids go through the system here. And mm -hmm. they often work overtime. They often give up time with their family to mark mm -hmm. these um, assignment books for the kids. And they have to stay at school past hours many times. Teachers here work very hard. And they really, really care about their students in general. So it's not for lack of trying. But if the system is set up, that you must finish the textbook on time. That means you rush through things without learning things well. You cover them, but you do not learn them well. There is little time for listening or practice because the system is geared for rote mem memorization and passing the tests. The way the system is set up, it's really hard to change anything. So in a way, you can't really blame the teachers. The parents bear some of the responsibility because they just want their kids to get good grades. So. If you're talking about the foundation of how things are taught, the basic approach, no, it really has not changed. If you want to change it, it would be tough. And just setting a random year, like 2030, for things to change is not going to change it until you address the main issue. And you've got to have sound in people's ears first. And that's not happening. In fact, I was part of a committee of the Ministry of Education that was discussing this whole new policy. And I gave them a presentation on the importance of listening in teaching and mm -hmm. dot, dot, dot. And when I left, the Minister of Education, he shook my hand and smiled widely and said, thank you. <laughs> we will put it on file. <laughs> <laughs> So you actually uh, addressed the next question I wanted to ask you, what your thoughts were on the plans for Taiwan to become bilingual by 2030, <laughs> this has which I'm sure is a huge topic. Well, no, they're trying to make it quieter and quieter because they have scaled it back step by step ever since it came out. So when it first came out, it was really big and ambitious and certainly not very realistic. And mm -hmm. the people on the committee I mentioned, the people who are professionals, linguists, language teachers, college professors, etc., all of us are against it because you don't just legislate language ability into being. You change the way you teach it. You don't do it by laws. Laws are not going to change mm -hmm. anything. Right. So right. that's an artificial yeah. deadline. Yeah. That's right. It's like climbing a tree to look for a fish, as they say in Chinese. <laughs> so, so first of all, they said making English a second official language. And then there was an outcry that Taiwan is a multilingual society. Well, what about mm -hmm. Southern Min and Hakka and all of the mm -hmm. Austronesian languages spoken in Taiwan, which have been spoken here longer than Chinese? So there was an outcry. So they kind of dropped that whole second official language thing. You don't hear that anymore. And after that, they also realized all the obstacles in the way of this goal. And they also dropped the 2030. We were told under the table very quietly, don't mention 23 anymore or 2030 anymore. Oh. So it's been really scaled down and quieted down. So I'm wondering if people realize how unrealistic it was. They will slowly be more receptive to actually something more realistic and that is slowly improving the system that we have mm -hmm. but so do you think that there will be 
more bilingualism in terms of like what languages are available in public places like on um, signage for tourists or mass transit or like is there still an idea of making English more accessible or more used in Taiwan? I think that has always been on the agenda. Taiwan has been kind of slow at internationalizing, but it has slowly improved over the years. During Mang Jiu's presidency, he had everything turned into pinyin, which I know is highly political, but pinyin is actually a good choice because that's what foreigners learn when they learn Chinese, and that's what they will recognize. So that has actually improved the situation a lot. All of the signage for the MRT also has pinyin and English, and a lot of the buses, while it's full of mistakes, they have some. And public signs, they're slowly kind of catching up. Very often they don't get a native speaker to check, so the English is not correct, and it's kind of the butt of many jokes. Slowly, Taiwan is coming around. Bigger problems are on, for example, websites. You know, a lot of websites are also trying hard to provide English pages. And the priority mm -hmm. is ones that foreigners are more likely to use. So if it is an obscure, very local kind of a web page, you know, for local government, that is not a priority. But if it involves, for example, banking or um, citizenship rules or anything like that that foreigners may have need of, they are certainly working on that. They need to do more, but they're working on it. Yes, there needs to be a bigger effort. Early in the process of trying to deal with this policy, they were saying, well, all government documents should be translated into English. We do not have the manpower to do that. We do not have the manpower, people power, mm -hmm. to teach English classes by native speakers or even by highly qualified local teachers using only English, you know, English medium instruction. We do not really have enough teachers who can do that. We do not have enough translators who could translate all of these documents. And in fact, we do not need all of those documents. Just focus on the ones that are high priority. And it's going to cost a lot of money. So money is limited. Decide what is most important and focus on that. I think they're in a process of doing that now. You know, it may not be fast enough, but it's happening. Okay, good to know. Yeah, banking is another one I just mentioned because banking is often nearly yes. impossible for foreigners. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully the forms in the bank, like even just a basic deposit slip or something, can have some English on it. Yes, and I have to mention that part of the problem is the U.S. government because of FATCA. They have increased the burden of paper reporting for banks. If you have oh. an American customer, you have to fill out a whole bunch more forms. And a lot of banks just oh. refuse to do that. Yeah, they should get rid of FATCA. <laughs> That's the U.S.'s problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know. We did do an episode on uh, the issues of banking in Taiwan, so that's interesting to know. Oh, it's a big issue. Foreigners here, if you make over a certain amount of money or have a certain money, uh, more than 10,000 U.S. in assets, there are two places where you have to report all of your assets. You have to report which bank they are held in, the address of the bank, and your, pass, uh, your passbook number. All of that must be reported to the government in two different places every tax season. And for us middle-class people, that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, why are we going to give over our account numbers to the U.S. government? We're, we're just saving money that we have lawfully earned, and we've already, all of us have already, well, most of us have applied, have filed our 
federal income taxes. We get double taxation here. That's, I realize it's going off topic, but that's another big issue for foreigners here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, also in the last episode, you mentioned your Facebook page, and I'm wondering how is that, that page is still up and how has it evolved in the past 10 years? I've just mainly used that as a portal to my mostly my, my teaching materials for my students. So every semester they have to go in through there to get to the class syllabuses. And I've also put up all kinds of other resources there, especially in phonetics, because I taught phonetics for many years. And those are available to the public. And the phonetics part has steadily been growing. And I have an NTU phonetics group on Facebook. So that has been continuing. The other things are kind of there for reference for those who are interested, mainly for my students. And you mentioned that you have a student, uh, Melissa, who's taken up the challenge in your in teaching by producing some videos on English. Can you tell me a little bit about her and what she's doing? Yes. Uh, one year in phonetics class, well, every year I have a lot of really great students, but Melissa just really was having shoulders above most of the class. And I didn't know how she had gotten such a wonderful accent. And then she told me her story that I told you earlier. And I said, you know, maybe when I retire, I would like to do a startup because I want to make this into an app. And her eyes just sparkled and she smiled at me. She said, I want to do that too. So we are now collaborators. I came across your interview with I'm Learning Mandarin podcast and I was really struck by what you said about your morning practice um, <laughs> that you read this. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Maybe it's better for you to explain what that is. Yes, I'm really big on all of these self-improvement things and efficiency hints and everything else. I've followed them closely over decades. And a couple of them include, first of all, whatever you want to get good at, you have to work on it every day, as I already mentioned. But Whatever is really important to you, you have to do it first thing in the morning. Number one, if you don't, it's probably not going to get done, and it's maybe not that important to you. And then number two, maybe you'll do it later in the day, but by then your brain energy is not as high and your sharpness is not as good. So whatever is really important to you, you better do it first. And I have a bucket list, not a really formal one, but there's some things I really want to finish while I'm still healthy enough to do them. And one of them is to read a lot of classical Chinese. So that's basically the first thing I do when I when I get up is I read a passage from classical Chinese. And I've gotten through many entire works of Chinese that way. Um, I've, I got through The Dream of the Red Chamber in the original. I've gotten through, uh, there's a book called So Sen Qi. It's from the about the 4th century AD. It's a collection of tales of the supernatural. Now I'm working on Zuo Zhuan, which is the spring and autumn animal, uh, animals, annals, and <laughs> the Zuo commentary. So that's what I'm working on now. It's, I was always kind of afraid of it because it's so old. It's from about uh, the Zhou dynasty. So, so it's from about, say, 400 BC oh. and a little bit later than that when they compiled it. And I was kind of afraid of it, but then I got to it and you use an addition with good commentaries and notes, and it's perfectly doable. So I'm, I'm working on that now. And I just feel really glad that I'm doing that. I get a great sense of achievement, and I'm able to use the things I learn from ancient Chinese. It helps me understand Chinese society better, and I learn more 
characters and sayings and just literary Chinese in general. So that's what I do in the morning, and I think that's good. After that, I have an exercise routine, and I listen to the French news because I kind of wanted to uh, dust off my French that I learned in high mm-hmm. school but didn't follow up on. So I listen to the French news every morning while I exercise, and then I go on to my other work after that. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. Yeah, that's pretty inspirational um, hearing that from someone like you who is quite fluent in Chinese already and you're still practicing this every day up to now and then also practicing your French. Yeah, with literary Chinese, it really connects you with the past. And these writers were such good storytellers. You can learn good writing from them in any language because they are so succinct and they have absolutely nothing extraneous. It just tells what is important to the story and carries the plot along. And there is often just this crazy unexpected twist and that's why they wrote it. It's just the perfect structure of any good writing and you find it in these classics And I find that inspiring. And you find that people were just as petty and ridiculous and kind and everything (laughs) else that you see today was exactly the same, you know, or as rude or as, um, as fake or whatever it is, all of it's there. And then you really feel connected to the past. And one thing that hits me is they're often saying like, you better behave well because for example, a ruler, everything you do is going to be recorded. You know, and if bad behavior is recorded, what kind of a model is that for your future sons and grandsons? I felt like they were talking right to me because I'm a future person that they had in mind Mm -hmm. when they were writing. All of this to me is just so inspiring and exciting. That's really interesting. I guess there's some universal things about human behavior and morals and ethics and things like that. Oh, absolutely. And then when it's hit home to you, you just feel really connected to all of humanity that has ever lived. Wow, fascinating. Great. Um, Is there anything else that you'd like to share about your experience teaching in Taiwan or living in Taiwan with my listeners? I have now lived here for around 38 years. And if you add on a year and a half when I was a student, it's getting close to 40 years. And Taiwan, this sounds like an exaggeration. Taiwan to me is heaven on earth. This has just been the most wonderful life I could ever imagine for myself. I'm so glad I came here. I love it here. Every day I wake up, I think, wow, I have another day in this wonderful place. And I want to try to make the best of it and enjoy it. Now, I tried to have a really positive attitude when I've lived elsewhere like the States. But here, it just comes out of me naturally. I just really, really love being here. It's the nicest part of the Chinese-speaking world, if you ask me. (laughs) I just really, really love being here. I love teaching. I love connecting with my students. People are kind, and I feel like what I do is appreciated here because there is so much need for help in language learning and improving language learning. So it's sort of like I found my place on the globe and in the universe. And I'm just so thankful to Taiwan. Oh, that's so wonderful. So have you lived in other Chinese-speaking countries? Yeah, I lived in Hong Kong for two summers. And this is not to put Hong Kong down. I actually enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, and I stayed in Singapore for a little while. I visited the mainland several times because we have family there. 
Um, my kid's dad, uh, his brother is still in China and we brought his son to Taiwan to grow up with my own kids. I have a nephew who was oh. brought out from, from China many years ago. So he's yeah. grown up with my own kids. So I've been to mainland China several times. And honestly, I really loved it too. I had a great time there. But yeah, Taiwan is like nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to be on Talking Taiwan. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. I've been speaking with Karen Chung, an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Foreign Languages and Literatures of National Taiwan University. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.